Good morning, John. Good morning, Mario. This morning, we're going to be chatting, for people that don't know you, John Agner with Sanders and Agner. Man, my accent kills me when I say your last name. <laughs> um, but you a, are a practicing attorney, and you do mostly real estate law. And so what I wanted to do is bring you in so that we know our audience are mostly real estate professionals, title professionals, mortgage professionals. And I'm kind of like on this crusade to try to get my colleagues and my vendors to seek legal advice when it's needed, to stay out of trouble, um, and to work with professionals. And so um, you're also my neighbor, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Um, and let's, let's start from something very basic. Um, so you guys do real estate law, but that kind of permeates in other areas. Tell me some of those areas you also work in. Yeah, I mean, naturally from, from real estate, it kind of flows into certain other areas, one of those areas being uh, probate, because if you own property and you pass away, something has to happen to that property. Uh, so usually that's going to involve some form of probate. Uh, then you get the folks that plan a little bit more, and maybe they take their real property and they put it into a trust. So we do uh, trust drafting. Uh, maybe they just designate who they want their property to go to through a will. So we do uh, will drafting and revise those documents from time to time for folks that are diligent as, as it may be necessary. Um, and then also you get folks that are investing in property that may want to form a trust to hold title instead of holding it personally or pop, perhaps they want to form a corporation or an LLC to hold title to the property rather than, than holding it personally to avoid potentially some liabilities. So we do uh, some business formation type work, um, LLCs, corporations. We do uh, associations. So we represent a couple of homeowner and condo associations, mostly in the, uh, in the Dr. Phillips area where our office is. But uh, we do have a couple spread out throughout the Orlando metro area. Um, so I've talked to you about this. I'm I'm pretty passionate about the fact that when we're doing real estate transactions, um, there should at the very least be someone legal counsel a text message away or a phone call away. And um, you guys do all these different things because all these different things encompass um, sort of the entire uh, gamut of what real estate transactions should look like um, in regards to will and trust, like Oftentimes, it's important for someone to understand what um, what putting a transaction, a, a, a real property under a trust, does for them in terms of liability. Um, and so, real estate agents are not really equipped to answer a lot of those questions. Oftentimes, and that's where you guys come in. So, yeah. if if someone is looking to purchase um, an investment property, um, they would probably be well served to talk to someone like you in regards to what their options are for title, for example. Well, yeah, if, if you're purchasing investment property, especially if you're, if you're purchasing cash without a loan, you kind of have free reign to do almost whatever you want with that property if you're not bound by what a lender is going to need you to do. So, yeah, we would recommend for folks that are buying property as an investment or even for agents that have uh, buyers or, you know, looking at investment property to suggest, hey, maybe you want to put this property, you know, instead of titling it to yourself personally, maybe you want to title it into a trust. This way, if, if there's something that occurs with the property, whether it's an injury at the property or, or something else, you can avoid some of that personal liability. And yeah, maybe you get sued. They're going to sue the 
property owner, which would be the trust, or maybe you have an LLC that owns the property that you formed, and the LLC now is the one getting sued instead of you personally, and you can avoid personal liability and you limit your your exposure to just that one property, which is extremely extremely helpful if you own multiple properties, um, compartmentalizing right, because, your liability. Right, because the, the, the train of thought there is if you own four rental properties and something happens in one of them, you don't want those folks to be able to sue you over your entire portfolio. Um, you want them to kind of be encapsulated to that one property. Yeah, and, and you know what? It's, it's actually a good opportunity to speak about Florida homestead protection because most folks are familiar with Florida homestead in its, its tax implication, right? The fact that if you claim a property as your homestead, it lowers your property taxes, right? Which is fantastic, and that's how most people know about it. But the Florida Constitution provides more protection than that to, to property owners. So you've got your homestead, the house that you live in, and the Florida Constitution prevents third-party creditors from collecting against that property, from leaning against that property. So if, if you have a contractor that comes out and you don't pay them and they contributed work and materials to your house, yeah, they can lean against your homestead property. Your HOA, if you don't pay them, yeah, they can lean. Of course, your mortgage lender, if you don't pay them, and of course, the government can put a tax lien. But that's pretty much it. If you own, you know, in your own personal name, another property across town that you use as a rental, they can't come back and try to seek payment out of your, your homestead. But they can seek payment out of that rental property. Um, if you had three rental properties and you owned them all personally, right, they could seek payment out of all three. They can't touch your homestead. So by by putting each property in your portfolio into a different LLC, or even um, I've, I've had clients that have one LLC and then each property is owned by a different trust. This way it kind of makes administration of the whole structure that much more streamlined. And yes, if something were to happen, it's just that one property that is at risk and not everything else that you've got down the line. Right. Um, one thing that you mentioned when you're talking about um, doing this trust, you, you said if the property doesn't have a mortgage. So evidently, if you're buying an investment property with a mortgage, you have more limited options because the mortgage companies want you to take title in a certain way. Some mortgage companies are going to have certain requirements there. Um, the other thing is, is if, if, you're, if that's what you're trying to do, if that's what your ultimate goal is, um, you're probably better served seeking out a lender who's going to be willing to work with you on that. And yeah, there may be additional documentation that you just sign and personal guarantees and whatnot. And they'll be able to get the loan done the way that you want it to uh, so that you can put that property in trust or so that you can put it into an LLC. But if you try to spring that on a lender at the end, hey, and by the way, here's the deed. We're giving it to this trust. That's the point where the lender is probably going to go, wait a second. That's not the deal we made. So you should be proactive about this. You should ahead of time before you go through the process, kind of maybe sit down with someone like you and say, hey, John. I'm looking to invest in real estate. I think I'm going to look for a loan. What are some things I should be asking my lender besides how much are you going to charge me in closing costs and you know whatever else? Um, besides the finances, what are some things that, 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 that we need to know before we engage into this loan to make sure that we're covered? Um, and I don't think that's something that a lot of people know because you, you see people doing a lot of crazy stuff. Like they'll buy a property that's an investment property and then they hear in some seminar that it should be under an LLC yeah. 
and then they open an LLC and they try to do something like a quit claim deed on the property. And that's got significant risks, doesn't it? Well, I, I've seen that. I've seen folks that do that. And what they're kind of risking is that at some point their mortgage lender may go, hey, wait a second, how come you, Mario, personally don't own this property and how come it's in Mario LLC? Where where, where did that happen? When, why did you do that? And there may, they may come back and say, hey, did you read your mortgage? Because right here it says you're not allowed to do that. Now they're kind of banking on the fact that, or maybe they're relying on the possibility that their lender's not going to notice the title transfer. Hey, as long as the payments keep coming in, the mortgage company's not going to care. And specifically, this is the do-on-sale clause that states Well, it may not be a do-on-sale clause. That could be a spot where they put it, but there's sometimes a clause in the mortgage that'll say that you're not allowed to to transfer title, um, that if you do transfer title, that they want you to pay off the loan or, or at least get written permission from the lender beforehand before you do it. But right, you've got folks that just go ahead and do that. And yeah, it may turn out okay. That's a possibility. The lender may never notice. You go along, eventually maybe you sell the property or eventually maybe uh, you pay off the loan and nothing bad happened. And you think, oh, okay, well, this, this wasn't a problem. But it could also go really bad. Uh, the, the, the worst case scenario would be the lender calling the loan. Lender saying, hey, you, you did something. You defaulted on the terms of the loan. And now you got to pay us the whole principal right now. And we're not willing to Giant. Yeah, we're not going to negotiate. We're not going to go back and say, well, if you title it back, they just want it paid. And it seems like that's perhaps a more frightening prospect today than it was, say, even just 10 years ago. Because, you know, 10 years ago, the only time your lender would probably go back and check on these documents or checking the status of the title transfer of a property was if you defaulted on your payments. So as right. long as you continue making your payments right. on time, chances are they weren't manually going back and looking for yeah. this stuff. But nowadays, I mean, I, the last mortgage that I got, I remember the mortgage company like was able to find skeletons on my closet that I didn't even know existed. I mean, like the technology has gotten so yeah. good for them that a lot of this stuff is going to become streamlined. Like no one's going to be looking it for it. Someone's going to be alerted like, hey, this property transfer names, you know, down the road. So perhaps it's, it's something that people haven't had to be so concerned with in the past, but as technology gets better at talking to the lenders, yeah. um, they'll be a little more proactive with this stuff. Um, when you're buying a primary residence, um, are we pretty much saying in the state of Florida that the homestead kind of covers you pretty well? Yeah, and, and homestead's going to cover your primary residence in the state of Florida. Um, you're allowed only one, obviously, homestead mm-hmm. property. Um, but the requirements for it are not terribly strict, right? What you could call a homestead property is not exactly, um, it's a lot of gray, right? Not a lot of black and white. It's a test of a number of factors. And the more of those factors you kind of meet, the better, you know, you're able to determine, yeah, this is definitely this person's homestead. So like, for example, you know, in central Florida, we've got a lot of folks that, uh, are retirees, right? And maybe they live part of the year here in Orlando and they live part of the year in, uh, in, New Jersey or New York or Massachusetts or something. And let's say they're actually from New York, but they have this house here in Florida. If their intent is that, hey, this house in Florida, that's my primary residence, even though the house that I own in New York that I've lived in for 40 years is the one I visit in the summer. This one down here in Florida, I spent, you know, more of my year here. I always intend to come back here. I keep all of my, you know, family heirlooms and, you know, important family related items here at this house. This is the house where, where I, I plan to spend my golden years, as you, you know, may call it. That could still be your homestead, even if you own more than one property. So, and even if you own another property for a longer period of time. Um, 
It's just a matter of saying, hey, this is, this is the property that I intend to come back to. You don't even have to really live in your homestead property. We've had clients where um, they have a homestead property, say, in, in Orlando, but they uh, spend a lot of their time working out in Daytona, so they've got a condo in Daytona. And they live five days a week in their condo in Daytona because they work out there, and they come back to Orlando on the weekends. That can still be their homestead property, even though they're only spending a smaller fraction of time at that home rather than the one that they spend the majority of their time at, because that's always the house, that's always the property that they plan to come back to. Sounds like it's a common sense view on it. So the litmus litmus test is not, like you said, it's not this one thing that you have to do. It's kind of like, it's a question of intent and what you're doing and all these other things. Um, We also touched, when you started talking about the areas of practices, you guys also work with probate and do wills. Right. Um, and so I think that's an important thing for people to know. And, I, you know, it's fascinating when I, the more that I learn about it, not just as a real estate agent, but just as someone that's, that owns things, <laughs> um, that, you know, the benefits of having a will, the benefits um, of, you know, having um, perhaps, you know, a trust that holds some of your things, um, and what's your kind of suggestion for people? Should everybody have a will? Like, at what point should you be considering having a will? Yeah, I mean, a will is not this this difficult document to go have have somebody draft up for you. Um, it shouldn't, t- even if you have only a small amount of, of worldly goods, right? But you want to make sure that there's an orderly transfer of that property. Um, a will is something that almost everyone should have, Uh the alternative being Florida kind of has a will built into the statutes for everybody. It's called Florida's intestacy statutes. And it basically determines who all of your worldly possessions, your real property, you know, bank accounts, whatever, who that stuff would go to if you haven't designated a beneficiary for it uh, specifically by, by having a will or by having, say, a payable on death account in, uh, with your bank account or with a life right. insurance policy paid out to a specific individual. So the Florida statute is going to say, hey, if, if, if you pass away and you have no will, we're going to give everything to your spouse. And if you have no spouse, we're going to give everything to your kids. If you don't have any kids, we're going to give it to your parents. And it, it, there's a whole chart, basically. It's written in words, but you can reduce it to a chart that shows where the property should flow to if somebody doesn't have a will. Right. So now by having a will, you can now <clears throat> do away with that statutory provision and direct where your property is going to go. Create your own chart, if you will. Basically. And, and then you can go one step beyond that and, and form a trust. See, the problem with, with just having a will or even having no will is that no matter how it works, whether you have will or no will, you have to go through probate to have a court, to have a judge say, all right, take this property that this person used to own and now title it over to this person. That takes time. You have to file a probate action. You have to publish for creditors to let them know, hey, this person passed away. If they owe you any money, let us know. You've got to notify any other beneficiaries that you're administering the estate. It takes, you know, four to six months, sometimes longer, depending on, on what the type of estate might be. And where and, it is. Yeah. And you may have items, bigger items, right? Like maybe, you know, cars or homes or, uh, <clears throat> you know, significant savings accounts or stock even. And you could put these things in a trust. And the trust is going to, the trust agreement is kind of like a rule book, right? It's like the top of the box on a board game that tells you how to play. And it's going to say, okay, well, when this person passes away, you know, give this vehicle to that person, give this property to that person. And the trustee 
is going to be able to just go in and say, yep, we have a death certificate. He really did die. Yep, we're going to give this car to that person, take the death certificate, go down to the DMV, get a title transferred. Same thing with pro- property, trustee deed, quick claim the property to the new owner, and now it's done. So you could have it done in potentially a week as opposed to months to maybe a year or more when going through probate. So a trust kind of streamlines the process and lets you avoid the court system. Um, that is awesome information. Um, I don't think most people know that, that it's the trust serves as a bypass to probate court. Because one, one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, specifically when it comes to real estate is um, when should you be meeting with someone to list your home, after, to list a home from a deceased person? So like if you know, your parents or someone passed away, when should you list that home? And you know, to real estate agents, when are they able to put that property on the market? And I think you know, there is this misconception that if someone has a will, like this is going to go by super fast. No, it absolutely isn't. Um, a will doesn't streamline the probate process. It just directs where your property is going to go. You still have to go through the probate process. And actually, sometimes a will can make the process take just a little bit longer because now I've got to prove that that's a valid will in addition to every, everything else I've got to do in a, a, in a probate without a will. Um, but it kind of comes back to uh, the Florida homestead provisions again. Because when you could list property and when you can actually sell it, when you can actually transfer title to it, is going to be somewhat dependent on whether that property was homestead or not. So if you've got a homestead property, we talked about it not being subject to third-party creditors earlier, which means that if if, uh, Aunt Betty dies and she owes money to uh, Home Shopping Network, which we see all the time... um, Home Shopping Network can't come to that house and say, hey, that we want paid when that house sells because it was the homestead property. If it was an investment property, when that house gets sold, those creditors, those third-party creditors can take a portion of the proceeds. So one of the things we can do as part of a probate is we can ask for a homestead determination, which we'll have, we'll send a petition into the court and ask the judge to say, hey, based on these facts that we've given you, can you determine that this property is the homestead of the person that passed away? And if it is, would you permit us to sell that property and deposit the proceeds from that sale into a bank account for the estate? And that situation can be done a little bit more quickly than probating an entire estate. I've done that where, um, yeah, maybe we have to open a second bank account to put just this money in so it can be separate from all the other assets. But if a judge signs off on the homestead determination order and says, yes, you can sell it, and you have consent of all the beneficiaries to sell it, then you could actually sell a homestead property while the probate is still going on. So from a, an agent or a broker standpoint, that property could get listed and sold once the, the homestead determination is made, regardless of what's going on in the rest of the probate. As long as the judge has said it's okay, you should be able to sell it, and whoever's been appointed as the personal representative of the estate should be able to sign off on that deed and transfer title. And the person that will be signing the listing agreement will be the personal representative of the state. Right. And what the court's going to issue when that personal representative is designated is called letters of administration. And that's really what you're going to need to see to determine, yeah, this person is authorized to act on behalf of the estate of the person that's deceased. So before the probate case is opened and before the court determines the personal representative and issues those letters of administration, technically no one can list that property. Yeah, for that that time in between, you're kind of stuck. But 
that step in the probate process can happen relatively quickly. Okay. See, part of what takes probate uh, a bit longer is there's certain time periods, certain waiting periods that are kind of built in. So I have to file a case. I have to publish in a newspaper to let creditors know that there's this um, person that died that, hey, if they owe you money, let us know or else your claims are barred. So waiting for those time periods to expire can draw probate out several months. But the homestead determination can be done quickly. Once you file the case, you can get the letters of administration relatively quickly. You can get uh, the homestead determination done relatively quickly. And you could probably have those things done in a couple of months rather than you know the several months that you're gonna have to wait for other uh, time periods to expire. And yeah, at the point where you've got the judge to sign off on the homestead determination, at that point, you're probably safe to go ahead and list that property and, and try to market it and get it under contract. You could try to push the envelope and list it a little bit earlier potentially, but you'd have to let any potential buyer know, hey, we may have to wait for the judge to sign off on this because if you had a cash buyer walk right in the same day you listed it, well, you'd still have to wait. You wouldn't be able to close right. on it right away. Um one of the questions that always comes up in real estate transactions pertains um, homeowners associations. And so yeah. um, people in Florida, um, we are very used to homeowners associations because yes. they're everywhere, but people in other states are concerned about homeowners associations. There's, it's not something that common elsewhere. Um, what are some things that people should be aware of with homeowners associations? I don't know. And the question, this is the root of the question. I, I don't think everyone understands the power that homeowners associations have. Um, and I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really speak to it with any credibility, but you can. Yeah, and, and we do represent a couple of homeowners associations, and we, we've represented homeowners against homeowners associations. Um, homeowners associations in Florida, yeah, they, they do have a lot of power, and you're right. There's, there's a lot more homeowners associations here than other states, and they function differently than other states. So folks come in from other states, and they, they think they, you know, oh, I had a house and another state and we had a homeowner association. I know what's going on here, but Florida is a little bit different. And it's very highly regulated uh, what homeowners associations can do. And condo associations and homeowner associations are very similar. There's a couple of, of, of small differences between the laws that regulate each of them. But for the most part, the, the rules are gonna be about the same. Um, and the biggest surprise that people have is that what happens if you don't pay your homeowners association dues? And the answer is, well, the homeowner association could foreclose the property. So if you don't pay your homeowner's association, you could own a half a million dollar house and owe your homeowner's association $2,000 or even $500. And they could come in and file a, a foreclosure action against you. Now, there's certain warnings they have to send you ahead of time to let you know, hey, you, you owe us some money. We appreciate it if you pay us. If you don't, we're going to put a lien on the property. But they're serious. But they're serious. When you get that letter, that's the first step of them filing a foreclosure action. And I can tell you that that first letter, things aren't looking too bad. You know, if you've only missed a month or two or maybe a quarter or two of your dues, you call whoever their attorney is, hey, or, or even their property manager sometimes will send these letters out. They're more of a form letter, kind of dictated by statute. Hey, we'll get you paid. Let us know what the dollar amount is. And that'll be the end of it. It's pretty, pretty quick and easy and, and relatively inexpensive at that point, right? But as soon as the attorney becomes involved and has to send out a lien and record it with the county, send out a second letter that tells you they're going to foreclose the lien or the, end, you know, the final step, which is to file a foreclosure action, you can imagine the attorney fee is building into that as you go along that process. And I've yet to find a homeowners association covenant that doesn't provide for payment of attorney fees to the association in that sort of situation. So now you're paying the association, you're paying 
their attorney and you've got this lien that's got to get cleared off title to your house before you've really kind of cleaned up the mess. And it can get expensive really quick once it goes into foreclosure. And does this also apply to fines? So like if your homeowners association sends you a fine because your flower bed is dead. Right. Now, now fines is where um, homeowners and condos kind of diverge a little bit, but it's kind of the same process to a point. So when you violate your, your homeowners association's rules, you're probably going to get a letter at least once from a property manager or from maybe the board themselves saying, hey, you've got some flowers in front of your house. They're all dead. We'd like you to take them out and put in new ones so that it looks you know, in line with the standards of the community. And then maybe if you don't do it, they're going to send it over to the attorney's office and say, hey, send them a letter and let them know that we're going to start finding them. Now, that doesn't mean you're getting fined immediately because the letter has to provide you 14 days to correct the violation. Or within that 14 days, you can request a hearing in front of the fining committee of the association if you disagree with, with the fine. If you don't respond or if you don't fix the uh, violation or if you don't request that hearing, on the 15th day, fines are going to start. Now, if it's an ongoing violation, like with your example, every day that it's not fixed, it's, it's violated every, every single day. They can fine you $100 every day until they hit $1,000. And now this is where condos and, and HOAs kind of diverge. For a condo association, that's kind of the end of it. I've added $1,000 to your, your balance on your, your HOA account or COA account, and, and now it's just going to sit there until you pay it. With a homeowner's association, I can convert that fine into a lien, and I can send you the letter that says, hey, you haven't paid us what you owed us. Here's what you owe, and you'll see all the fines. We're going to lien your property if you don't pay us. And then it goes right down that foreclosure situation just as if you hadn't paid your dues. So mm-hmm. a homeowner association can actually foreclose on your house eventually for not correcting a violation that they fined you for. Frightening. And, and most people don't understand that. Now, now, most people get a letter that says they're being fined and their initial reaction is, is anger, not concern about losing their house because they don't understand that eventually that's where the process could lead. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely sobering um, because I think mm, the instinct more, most people have is, like you said, is anger and it's get the fine and say, screw these people, I'm not going to pay them. Right. You know, and if you do that, you could lead down a very treacherous road, very expensive at the very least. Right. John, thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, your office is in Dr. Phillips? Yeah, we're located uh, right near the intersection of Turkey Lake and Sand Lake Road. We're between uh, McDonald's and Bank of America, right facing Sand Lake Road there. So if anybody needs to do trust, wills, uh, real estate closings, you guys are a one-stop shop for that. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do all those things and more. Perfect. Yep. Thank you, John. Yep. Great to be here.